Hi, I'm Chris Burkett. I'm Shari Talon. And we are The, the Free, Free Spirits. Spirits. And we're on the podcast for The Talking Blues with Mako. So, let me begin by asking you about Free Spirit. How did you come up with that name? Uh, well, if The Free Spirits... Uh, is, is actually from one of our songs oh, okay. called The Free Spirit. And uh, uh, the song is essentially, is in this universe we live, we're living in, the, the number one rule in the universe is free will. So that means that we're, I believe that we're spirit beings in a material body here mm-hmm. to experience. And that means that we, we are here to experience everything that we do, whether it's good or bad. There's no idea of good or bad, it's just experience. And so essentially we are free to make mistakes, be stupid or be clever or be loving. We're free to do all those things. And that's, that's why we wanted to call the song The Free Spirits. The Free Spirit, the song's called. But we, then we, we were thinking, well, what should we call our band? And uh, we thought, okay, well, let's name the band after one of the songs on the album. That's what it came about. Did you oh, want to say something? Oh, yes. Um, uh, the songs really do have a bit of a spiritual um, direction, lyrically. Um, we have songs about the environment, and we have songs, uh, for example, The Hidden Life of Trees, which is from the same book by Peter Wallerman. Right. And um, Seeds of Peace. And so we were when we were recording and writing, we were actually in the country. There's a lot of nature around us. And so many of the songs just have that lovely... Um, sort of feeling to it. So the idea of the free spirit and free will. Yeah. How long have you lived with that um, um, concept? Well, I I've discovered that over my life's journey. Uh, you know, when I was a, a young kid, I grew up in a very unhappy family. Uh, my mother and father broke up when I was four. So I um, I, I was wasn't very happy with my family life right uh, so I did an electronics degree when I left school because my dad wanted me to do that and because I was living with my father uh, but I you know I wasn't really into being an electronic engineer I loved electronics but I was, uh, Deep Purple came to my college once to play right and I sat in front of uh, I stood there in front of uh, Richie Blackmore watching him play his guitar and uh, I had an epiphany thought I don't want to be you know, electronics engineer. I want to be him. <laughs> and it turns out that he comes from the same town as me. So he studied with a teacher called uh, Big Jim Sullivan, who was uh, Tom Jones's guitar player. Right. And Big Jim Sullivan taught Richie Blackmore, and he also taught me. So we I had the same guitar teacher. Um, so it's... Um, the story goes on. I don't know how much you want to well, tell you about I'm, that. But the, but the, the idea of... Um, freedom of spirit came to me I ran away from home and I was living on the streets of London uh, I was homeless for a while because I didn't have anywhere to go back to and uh, so this was after university yeah I left okay. I, when I finished my uh, university degree electronics uh, aircraft electronics I went uh, I just literally got on a train with a Gibson guitar and a suitcase with two t-shirts on it in the suitcase and I just ran away from home wait a sec if you wanted to be Richie Blackmore shouldn't you have a Strat I did have I did have a 1959 Strat okay in fact which uh, Jimmy Page tried, uh, played once 
Nice. Uh, when I was work, working, I did three months with Led Zeppelin. I'll tell you that story later if you like. And uh, also Rory Gallagher played it, and they both just loved it. Oh. So I did have a, a an old Stratocaster here. Right. Okay. So you, I just have to follow this thought that you left home, got on the train, went to London. Um, hoping to be a musician? Yeah. Uh, well, I was, yes, I, I just wanted to be a musician. I realized what my sole contract was. The reason I'm on this planet is to play music. I realized that. And I believe that if you follow your passion in life, you'll find happiness. So the free spirit kind of idea would have gone back to that? Well, in a way, but it's also it's because I, uh, I, was a, I was a seeker of truth most of my life. Even as a kid, I would, would not except what I was told by my teachers about certain things. I'd ask awkward questions and then get, you know, uh, a blackboard rubber thrown at, my, thrown at me, you know, as I used to do in those days, you know. Right. And so I, I was always um, look, seeking, seeking for truth. So I met a, um, a man called Tony Visconti uh, later on in my career uh, when I was about 24, and he introduced me to a teaching by a, a person called Gurdjieff, and Gurdjieff, uh, he died in 1949, but he was a seeker of truth and he spent most of his life wandering around the Gobi Desert and places like that looking for answers, which he couldn't find in the, the normal the scientific or philosophical or religious structures that he was subject to. So I, I found that, uh, I, I discovered that teaching and I worked for 15 years with the Gurdjieff School in London. Okay. And uh, it had a, a really profound effect on me and, and I realised... The, the spirit aspect of my being it began to grow. I began to realize that, you know, subsequently I went to India and I learned that su- suffering, which I'd done a lot of as a kid, uh, is not actually in the event itself, it's in our perception of the event. And uh, to give an example, we can, you know, we can complain that the rose bushes have thorns or we can rejoice that the thorn bushes have roses. Right. And that's the same event, different perception. I learned this in a university in India uh, many years later. So my the concept of being a spirit being in a material body here to experience gives me uh, incredible uh, freedom from the the everyday mundane trappings of the material world. You know, like right. paying rent, making money, all that stuff. It's it's all necessary, but it doesn't get to me the way it used to. So it's it's uh, you know if I believe when I go through a really difficult experience. I don't have the same reaction to it. I used to have a like, oh, this is terrible. I want to push it away. I have, I have the reaction I have now is, uh, this is here for me to learn from. I'm, su- I'm suffering because I said that to that person, or this person doesn't like me, or something's gone wrong in my life, and uh, like I just got divorced. And that was a really, uh, you know, when I was in my fifties, right. and uh, that was a really traumatic experience, but. When I look back on it, it's actually I learned so much from that. So, so everything that's happened to me in a, uh, which we normally term as difficult, I've realised this. It's been really beneficial for my, for my spirit. Right. Maybe not for my material body because you know you, you suffer and you get sick and all that stuff. But, uh, but if you live from as a free spirit, then you literally can live like a Superman. Nothing can touch you. You're immune. To everything that is possible for us, it doesn't mean we don't have feelings and love. That's right. another thing, but it means that the th- everyday things that really disturb us and make us stressed out and tense don't have the same power over us 
because we are free spirits. So I wonder, like you talked about your early childhood being difficult, and, and I can understand why, having gone through the divorce. Mm-hmm. Were you angry? And, and like when you look back on that, do you still, can you see the positives that that experience has given you at this point? Well, it's made me much stronger. I mean, when I was living on the streets in London, you know, sleeping out, you know, nowhere to live and no family to go to, it was literally, I guess for most people, that's the rock bottom. Right. But it, it didn't really have that effect on me. It made me much, much stronger. So that was, that was uh, I don't, it, the most negative thing you can perceive is not necessarily negative. It could be positive. It could be really beneficial for you. But did you think that while you were experiencing it? I always had, uh, I always had hope. But I, but I managed to, uh, you know, uh, concretize, I guess, or, you know, uh, analyze the fears that I was having and turn them through to, due to my teaching and, and my exposure to Gurdjieff and Alice Bailey and a lot of the teachings I've been involved in, Sufism and all that stuff. It's, but it's, that came uh, later, did it not? Yeah, so well, they, they, those things evolved yeah. from my search, my seeking for truth. Which I, which I was going through at the age of 19. And I, I have to tell you, when I was 19, I took an overdose of LSD because, you know, we all messed around with those kind of things right. in those days. You might want to edit this, but so I'll tell you. It's anyway. up to you. <laughs> and uh, that, was, um, that was a traumatic experience. I, I was with some people I didn't really like and they talked me into taking this drug and, I, and t- talked me into taking another one, you know. And I, I, got, I ended up in hospital getting a vitamin C jab because I was really out of it but what I realized from that experience which essentially was a traumatic and a negative experience I realized that I didn't know myself I was what I thought of as Chris Burkett for growing up as a kid actually became apparent that it was a kind of a shell around me which I, I will now call my my personality which is an acquired thing right. you acquire things from your parents from your peers and from your environment and I thought that was me but but during my uh, severe LSD trauma that kind of I kind of cracked like you know like the way an egg cracks mm-hmm. and then I saw inside a really young person I didn't really know and I had this huge question who am I and that's really the, that's the experience that really started me on my search for truth so at the age of 19 right so the homelessness, because well, I can't imagine being homeless, but when you go through that, did you always have confidence in you that you will get out of that situation? Or how did you view I that had, um, I think what really saved me many, many times in my life was music. Like, for example, I grew up in a really rough neighborhood. Most of my friends ended up in prison. It was all single mothers, and I had no parents my dad was a long distance truck driver so I never saw him now instead of going out and getting into fights and destroying things like my friends were doing I would sit home with learn Beatles records and Joe Cocker and you know I just buy all these vinyls you built your own guitar did you not yeah well when I was eight years old I I, I must something in me wanted to play music I didn't know what it was but and I couldn't you know it was impossible to get an instrument not where I lived anyway. Right. Uh, you know, if you're caught with a musical instrument, somebody would beat you up, you know, so call, call you all kinds of names. So it was, uh, so I was searched around in some garbage 
cans and got some wood and nailed together a kind of square box with a neck on it and I put matchsticks for frets and somebody gave me some banjo strings and I actually made my first guitar and it sounded like a koto a little bit you know <laughs> doing, 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 doing sort of sound you know? yeah, yeah. but I could make music on it and that was and then when I was 12 years old I saved up every penny I could get hold of and got my first electric guitar but I'm actually left handed so when I made my first guitar of wood I was playing that this way you know, the left-handed way. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't afford the left-handed electric guitar that I brought, my first one. It was, I, I could only afford the right-handed model. You know, supply and demand, right? The left-handed model is twice as much. Okay, so, so, but so I had to switch over at 12. But there's different ways of playing left-handed guitar, right? I mean, some people play it inverse to the right. Yeah, you, well, Jimi Hendrix just turned yeah. it over, right? So, but you played yeah. it like mirror image of a right-handed guitar. Well, it was, the thing is, because it was a homemade guitar, it's more like a banjo than a guitar in right. a way it only had four strings so I didn't really I was just tuned them to what sounded like, right I didn't know anything about music at all I just made some twisted the pegs and got it submits the sound right. a bit like slack key you know which comes from Hawaii right. uh, they, the, the Mexicans left lots of guitars in Hawaii after they left and the Hawaiians didn't know what to do with them and they, they, they the, the standard tuning the EBGDA the E sort of sounded awful to them it's not like anything so they tuned it to sound pretty when you strummed it and then they learned a, developed a whole uh, thing from that which is called slack key guitar so we call it open tuning in our, in our culture so the, the guitar my first guitar I was playing a bit like that I tuned it to a chord and was playing all kinds of things like that but when I got my first electric it was a six string I, had, I decided to get some books and try to you know but you basically had to relearn to, everything yeah I had to relearn how to play but also I had to start learning, you know, properly, you know, and then so that was, uh, and then I formed my first band at 14 uh, in Farnborough, the little town where I grew up, it's near London, and uh, that band was called the Friends of Fernberg, and we did, we were doing, you know, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, Richie Blackmore, you know, like, uh, um, uh, I got into bands like uh, Yes and uh, Gentle Giant, and Mavishno Orchestra. So as I got older, I, I started to get into more developed music. Right. Uh, I started off, you know, with Rory Gallagher, Taste, you know, that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah. like blues. I started off as a blues guitar player. And uh, I subsequently, many years later, got to play guitar for Rufus Thomas. And he gave me a really nice compliment one night. I came off stage and he said, hey, man, you, you're playing your guitar like B.B. King. So, so, oh, thank you. Nice. <laughs> thank you, Rufus. <laughs> well, you must have been good because if I'm correct, you, you were asked to join a tour when you were 21 with a band and you toured for like 21 months or something, two years yeah, or something. Uh, I, I can give you that story if you like. It's, it's, sure. uh, it was in my homeless period in London when I was looking for, I was going to every audition I could go to trying to get a gig. Uh, but I, got, I took a job in a gas station working night shift. And one night at two in the morning, approximately, a guy came in and said, are you Chris Burkett, the guitarist? And I said, yeah. And uh, initially I thought he was going to hold, hold up the gas station because he looked really tough and he had a big moustache and big guy and he said and his name was Roger Probert and he said um, uh, we're going to Germany we're a soul band we're going to Germany tomorrow for an 18 month tour we don't we need a guitarist do you, do you want to come with us so you had a reputation yeah because yeah, I, I was playing in the clubs around London doing whatever I could to you know get some money right 
Uh, I never got to busking, but I just did, you know did, played in like Irish pubs and that sort of thing, right? Elvis Presley songs and that sort of thing. Uh, I guess people saw me, and then this guy, I don't know how he found me, but he talked to somebody and said, "Oh, Chris is working at the gas station." So you know they come and pick me up, and I left at seven in the morning when the boss got in, just quit immediately, jumped in the back of the truck, and then from that point onwards things started to climb. We we were the best soul band in Germany, so the the agent asked us uh, to if we would mind being the the band for the major Memphis artists that were coming over. So that so Rufus Thomas was the first guy came over, and we did a big tour with him. Played in many countries, you know, Turkey and Greece and Italy and all over the place. And uh, Rufus Rufus is a great guy. He was so full of energy. Um, and then uh, Anne Peebles came over. I can't stand the rain. Remember, mm-hmm. remember her? Yeah. So I did a tour with her. I got to play uh, Bieber's in London on their opening night. It's a big exclusive club in Kensington. And uh, John Lennon was there. So I got to play in front of John Lennon. But, uh, That's pretty cool. I didn't actually meet him. but <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so but, when you look back at that moment where you're sitting in um, working at a gasoline station, homeless... And this person comes in that you don't know, and that literally changes your life. Yeah. How do you look back on that moment? I look at, back on it as a crossroads. I think life's full of our lives are full of little crossroads, mm-hmm. and what whatever decision you make at that crossroad determines what, what's going to happen to you. So I could have said, "Oh, you know, I oh, know, you know," I'm, could have been nervous and said, oh, "No, I'm not ready," or you know, find someone else, sort of thing, and just stayed in my little job because I had a by that time I had an apartment a small apartment because I was earning money you know so I could have stayed safe but I didn't I just said right I I don't care what's going to happen to me I I, I didn't even know how I was going to you know tidy up my affairs I had no time yeah yeah I literally ran into my apartment left a check on the thing grabbed everything I could and jumped into the truck to go to Germany so it's so it was a risk but if you don't take those risks at the crossroads then your life doesn't have the same energy right so it's really important to take risks and take chances um is it what you thought it would be to be on the road yeah i, I just I loved it yeah so it was uh um i got to i was playing a lot with uh, johnny wilder's chicago heatwave we were double bill most of the time and they subsequently became heatwave and rod temperton was the keyboard player He's, he was a when I when I was working with him, he was like covered in acne and living on <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, like we all were. Which part? Uh, excuse me. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, anyway, he was, he was physically in a mess, but he's a great musician. And then he went on uh, uh, Heatwave, had a hit with Boogie Nights, and my co-writer at the time, Barry Blue, wrote that song. So we produced that song, sorry. Uh, but Rod Temperton wrote it, and then Michael Jackson heard Boogie Nights, so their management contacted Rod to write some songs for Michael Jackson right. that's how he got to write Thriller so he went from like poor struggling you know Hammond's B3 player in Germany up to like being a multi-millionaire songwriter in, in LA you know so, <laughs> so that's pretty pretty Actions. cool pretty cool story yeah. yeah yeah Sherry tell me about your spirituality where that comes from um, I've always been a seeker and I've also looked at uh, connections uh, one of the reasons why we call this album 1111 and a lot of the stories that Chris is talking about were those incredible gifts that come that you're either aware of and you can kind of like try them out mm-hmm. um, or you miss them. 
you know, even a spirit animal. Sometimes, you know, I was just saying to Chris, he saw some ducks and so did I, and I looked it up and it was all this beautiful, playful and curious and happy. And um, so I've always been a spiritual person. I studied some different spiritual teachings, but I've always looked at my experiences as the guide. And what is it, what is my intuition saying? Um, I always wanted to know what the purpose of life was. You know, I got into reincarnation. and It was a spiritual path um, that a gentleman wrote. Uh, his name was Paul Twitchell, and it was about Buddhism and Hinduism. And he kind of took the best of everything. So I got a, an interesting um, teaching, and I began to live my life more of like what Chris was saying, is that we make choices. There's cause and effect. Mm-hmm. We have free will to make a mistake, but those particular experiences... Um, can lead to an effect and there's one experience actually Chris that you had with Tony Visconti that's interesting because you're talking about Chris's homeless mm-hmm. life and remember like you you know you, you were brought up on food that was not nutritional like it was just not good food and then remember when you lost your hearing oh yeah when I was doing the first album do you want me to tell the story? Or? Yeah, yeah, I think but, it's, it's... Well, you remembered it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's well, just well, a... Well, Tony's... Um, I did two albums with him with my band, Omaha Sheriff, and... Uh, we should explain who Tony Visconti is. Yeah, he's the David Bowie's producer, yeah. and, and Mark Bolan, and the old kinds of people. Uh, so when you met him, was it a big deal to you? Well, yeah, I, I came back from Germany, and then I joined a band called Love Affair, and we had a, some hit records at the time, Everlasting Love, Right. You probably remember that. And the bass player of Love Affair told me about a band that was working, about to get signed to Tony Visconti's Good Earth Records. And they were looking for guitar players. I went to the audition and they they asked me to join the band. And uh, that's how I got to meet Tony. But uh, the story about the health thing, which is kind of an interesting, I was, I'd been living in, you know, in a really uh, unhealthy way. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about nutrition um, of course, not having any parents, uh, I was just you know grabbing whatever I could to survive. And uh, so, so when I signed the contract with Tony, we started working on the first album, and I got this really bad flu, and I thought I was going to die. This is awful, and you know, and my both of my ears got infected to the point where they were like bleeding, and and I I was almost stone deaf during the sessions. I had to have the headphones up really loud. And uh, so I, I was lost all my confidence. I just felt terrible. You know, imagine a musician that can't hear. You know, so Tony felt really sorry for me. So he took me to these acupuncturists in just outside London, and it was a f- traditional family acupuncture clinic. And they that experience, that one experience, really turned my life around. I mean, I literally I went in really really sick. I laid on the bed. They interviewed me about my lifestyle, you know, how much salt I had, sugar, and what kind of food I ate, and even my sexual habits, everything. And then they gave me a thorough body search, and then I laid down on the bed, got looked like a porcupine, you know, full of needles, and and uh, literally as I was laying there, I could feel all this stuff that had been stuck in my throat for th- over three months, all just running running down my my throat. It was, it was remarkable. And then I got up and. The guy said, you, you have to go back, go to sleep now. So Tony took me back to the studio in Shepherd's Bush where we were recording the, the album and uh, went to bed. I, I actually fell asleep in the car and they had to carry me out of the, the car into my bed. And I woke up like two days later and my ears were totally clear. Uh-huh. And that, that experience told, made me realise really that 
I need to live, treat my vehicle, you know. We're in, we're in this vehicle, right, in this life, and we, we treat it with respect because it's a wonderful thing. And, it's, and also we're, we're an energy matrix, and it's our, our thoughts determine also how our health is as well. It's, you can have, I've experienced things in my life which are most people would call miraculous. I went to a, a university in India, in Chennai, and learned uh, Diksha, it's a, it's a healing technique, much like Reiki, right. uh, with a sacred Sanskrit mantra and everything. Uh, when I'd finished my month training there, I went to uh, stay in a hotel called the Quiet Healing Center. I got a, t- a touch of Gandhi's revenge, you know, the food poisoning. Right. It happened to me in South Africa once too, and I, I nearly died. You know. And it was the most awful things, but... This particular time, I was laying on my bed in absolute agony, and I thought, I've just been to this, studied this beautiful spiritual teaching. I was doing meditation, and it was wonderful, based on the Hindu tradition, but it was really, it was really powerful. And I, and I, one thing I learned is that suffering is not in the event, it's in our perception of the event. And also, the, one of the reasons we suffer so much is because we want to make want the environment to be the way we want it to be and so I was sitting there lying on my bed thinking well I, this is really painful but instead of like pushing it away and being really negative I'm going to embrace the pain as an experience in fact almost come to love it sounds a bit strange but if you if you adjust your perception in the right way you can actually enjoy a difficult experience right uh, and I started breathing in light. I have, a, I have a light technique, which I use in meditation. You imagine you're surrounded with golden light, which in fact we are, but it's, it's, we, it's not visible to the eyes, but it's a, we have an aura, which mm-hmm. is perceptible 15 feet away, you know. Uh, so I imagine that we ha- I had this around me. I breathed it into my central core and then breathed it out into my abdomen where all the pain was and just accepted the pain as an experience. And I could tell you, like, five minutes of doing those deep breathing and light transferring sessions I got off the bed and I was completely cured it's absolutely miraculous without any drugs or anything so wow and uh, that's that sort of things happened to me a lot I've, I've cured my dog of cancer once it's another story but it's there's the, I come to believe and understand that we we are an energy matrix you know we have 100 trillion cells in our body and each cell has like 100 trillion atoms and we're, we've got more atoms in us than stars in the universe and what's holding all that together is just an energy matrix. So it's, it's a question of the, the thought. We, we're able to project energy by thought. And if, so if you think positive, that's how placebo works. If you think that you're not sick, you won't be sick. But you have to really believe it. The placebo studies have proven that people can be given a, a tablet with nothing in it from a doc person they respect, like a doctor, mm. and they will get better, even there's nothing in it. That's been proved scientifically many times. So uh, there's the Mr. Wright story, you've heard of that, right? No. He, was, he had a t- tumor, uh, a deadly cancerous tumors, like, in fact, all over his body. And he went to a doctor and said, he said that he'd heard about this horse serum that could cure cancer. So the doctor got some of this serum and he injected it into him and two days later the cancer tumors just melted like snowballs gone but it turned out that the serum didn't do anything 
And when the guy found out that the serum was a, was a fake, right. he got sick again. The tumors came back. Oh. So that so that the the doctor said, okay, well, there's a okay, there's a serum that's been worked on. This is actually a true story. It's documented. Uh, that has uh, can actually work. So the, the the patient said, yes, I, I want to try it. So he injected him, and it's just water. And the same thing happened. The tumors just di- disappeared. It just shows you stories like that show you that you that we we are capable of miraculous things. Mm-hmm. And the reason we don't realize them or practice them is we don't believe them or we don't we're full of doubt and fear and we don't have the the faith to to know that we are miraculous do you still have doubt like knowing what you've gone through and having experiences that that's proven otherwise that if you you can get over do you still live with doubt um sometimes but i actually lock doubt out of my perceptions I, i treat doubt as a uh, almost like somebody behind doors and they come through and start to infect you. Like if you're writing a song, for example, mm-hmm. you can look at it and then you can st- start looking back at your first verse and say, oh, that's rubbish. You know, if somebody saw that, they would laugh at me and all this sort of stuff, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, but, so what I do, I, I, I realize now because I've done this inner work, I realize that that's, that's doubt creeping in and doubt is like a judge. So I, I actually lock the, Judge, the way I do that is I don't look back on anything that I'm, I'm creating. I let it all happen. And then then when, the, when the, you've manifested this beautiful piece of music or these words or whatever you want it was in you to get out, then you can look back at it. And that's a different, that's not the creative process anymore. That's the editing process. And then you can criticize and, you know, make it better and all, that, all the stuff that it needs to. But if you can keep doubt out of the way when you're creating, that is we almost have to get out of the way of ourselves because we're so riddled with doubt and fear, mm-hmm. all of us humans, you know. So you have to get out of the way yourself while you're, while you're creating uh, music anyway. And I think it's the same with any art form. It's interesting because I was just, I'm working on a little piece about songwriting and I was looking at videos and I saw an interview with Neil Young and he talked about that, you know, he's just a vehicle that these songs go through him. It's yeah. not, he doesn't create it. So it's not in his position. He shouldn't be editing the song while it's happening that he should let it Precisely. all happen yeah. and then at one point when it's gotten to the end then start editing but yes. beyond that he said whenever the feeling hits you should grab it and work with it because it will never come back again totally and then that's you know, once great. it happens that's what's great about voice memos yeah. you know we had dictaphones yeah, before yeah, voice yeah. memos but I could tell you that my voice memo on my phone has it's captured uh, hundreds of songs which you never would have been here otherwise. And, w- and what are we talking about? Talking lyrics or Well, sometimes I, I, quite often I wake up at four in the morning with a whole mer- melody, lyric, and even a video. And if you don't get up and document it somehow, either write it down or record it, voice memo is my favorite because it's a one-button thing, right? You're not plugging in studios yeah. and you know trying to get microphones set up and all that. It's bang, one button, it's going, it's recording. If you don't capture that... At that moment of creativity, which I believe these are gifts that come through us. We don't, I, I don't, I just like Neil Young and Sting as well, I've worked with, and Peter Gabriel. People I've worked with have told me the same story as you just told me about right. Neil Young that I, I didn't write any of my songs. And, and I, I really don't feel that like I've written any, any of my songs. I've just been like a, it has come through me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to capture that. Uh, if you don't, you probably have the experience. You could. I usually get a lot of stuff at four in the morning because there's a really good energy peak there. No, nobody's using too much electricity and there's, you know, it's kind of, everything's quiet, you know. Right. Uh, 
it's it's so strong. Sometimes you can say, oh, it's great. I'm never going to forget that. I'm going to go back to sleep. But if I've ever done that in the morning, it's just completely, you know, yeah. evaporated. You but never I mean, find I it again. I also wonder about the time when you think this is a great idea. And it could be it could be music or it could be writing down something. But then the next morning you look at it and go, eh, maybe it's not that good. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that could happen too, right? Yeah, that's... Um, that- yeah, that can happen, especially if you're smoking pot or something. You know, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> the night but but uh, it can it can adjust your perception that you appreciate something a lot more than is actually right. worth appreciating. So uh, that doesn't happen to me very often. Uh, usually, uh, normally, I the simplest melody you can say you can look at it in the next morning. So it's kind of mundane, but if you arrange around that melody you can make it really beautiful we we've got a song called four elements on a new album and that song came about sherry had a a first nation flute somebody gave to her Mm -hmm. and it's really difficult to play and so she could only really get like four clear notes out of it so so i said well what play me the four notes and she played them over and over and so i started to, to experiment on guitar and so you've got four notes which Listen to on their own are potentially mundane, but by changing what's going on underneath, we made that into like a really great piece of music. Yeah. And if you listen to four elements, you'll see it's only four notes. Right. That's why we called it four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, you know, the four fundamental elements on the planet. And, uh, but it's, uh, you wouldn't believe it's four notes. It sounds like a much bigger. It's because the, it's the vehicle that you put, and that's where arranging comes in really useful right I mean a lot of artists I work with I sometimes only just go and record the voice even if they haven't got a melody I just say let's sing whatever you're feeling can I capture it on voice memo or sometimes on my portable pro Tools system and then I listen to it and I write and then I create a, a vehicle around that which makes it work right and I use a program called Melodyne which is really useful on Melodyne you can take any instrument and you can apart from tuning it you can also create the melody that you think that the person was trying to achieve so maybe somebody who can't sing very well but they still got the feeling they want to say something and you can create that and it's transparent you don't you can't hear anything's been done to it so it's quite a useful uh, program i use that a lot yeah um, Sherry, tell me about your creative process. Tell me about your songwriting. Yeah. And you've done a bunch of stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah, I love songwriting. I've been writing since I was about 15. Actually, uh, tell me how you got into music. Um, you know, uh, my grandmother had a piano when I was really little, so I have a picture of me probably like 15 months old, and you, I've got one finger on the piano, and I'm looking up going, wow, what is this? <laughs> and it was just vibrating in, in me. Right. Um, and as I grew up, you know, I, um, I didn't really have that many friends. I, you know, I played with the kids on the street, um, but I just love playing piano. I just, uh, I studied just for a few years, and I realized that reading was hard. And so I began composing. Actually, even earlier than 15, and when I was 15, I got more into the flutes and you know more interesting arrangements. Um, so I would just play and I would listen to the piano and the experience of playing, it was as if I was like above myself that 
I was just listening, but yet my fingers were moving. And it's actually still that way to this day. When I, when I write on piano, it's because I'll start working on some things. And if it's a beautiful sounding piano, um, even better. And then all of a sudden, it just writes itself. And then a lot of times, you know, um, I'll, I've got thousands and thousands of voice memos because what I'll do is I'll record little ideas. And then, oh, I can go back to that and go, oh, that, that's perfect. That's just what I want to do right here. Um, so, How do you find them, though? How do that I find would be them? my problem. <laughs> I email them to myself. <laughs> oh no, but I mean, let's say you you have fifty different oh, ideas. Yeah. How do you find the one that's appropriate that you think, oh, this one works? Well, you know, it's very different when you're writing a song with lyrics, like a, a vocal song. Um, when I'm doing a piano piece, literally the whole piece can write itself within a few minutes, and it's done. The right. whole thing, and I'm, and later I might tweak a few little things. Um, but when I'm doing a song, and I've learned so much working with Chris, like when Chris was saying about. Um, you could have a very simple melody, but change the bass notes to make it more interesting. I realized when I looked at some of my pieces, I'm like, oh, no, this is the editing mode. I'm going to start changing my bass line to make it more interesting. Um, but when I'm working on actually a song with lyrics, um, what will happen is I'll go sit, you know, once again, it could be at my little Yamaha reface or on the flute. It'll be like this little part that I'll, I, I just inspired. It's like I'm singing it. I'll be walking and singing. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like... Yes, that, that's what I'm looking for. And um, normally, though, I do, I, I start having a relationship with each song. I almost look at a song like a friend. And when I go back to a song, uh, for example, uh, one um, that Chris is uh, we're gonna be producing for me, it's called Timing is Everything. And I really love that because I'm fascinated with time, fascinated with the fact that time is precious. For musicians, timing is everything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that one, there will be some, just like, I'll write, I'll write it to a certain point, but then I remember you brought up that uh, other part that we did in The River. This is a, mm. a, we've recorded quite a few other songs, this song, The Rivers, and some of our will be soon to be released uh, music. Um, <clears throat> but um, just kind of like exploring it and knowing it needs a musical bridge here and, and then coming up with a whole other idea. Um, when we've been working on this album and I've been watching the way Chris arranges, it's so exciting because, you know, he'll go, oh, I think you're going to really like this. And then, you know, with Pro Tools, it's wonderful. Uh, it's a wonderful tool that you can take things and do and explore and just do whatever you want, whatever you hear. I, I wonder, I mean, you've written children's music. You've written educational music. Is your approach to writing different on and whether you're writing for kids or if you're writing something that's more jazzy or yeah. whatever like that. That's a great question. Um, when I write, and I think most artists are like this, there's a reason. The reason I wrote for kids is because I had little kids at the time. And so I would be, you know, a brush your teeth song or, you know, a big dinosaur play or something like that. Um, but <clears throat> I find that it's artists are people that when we look at life, we see things and we feel things. And it can be a personal thing, a reflective thing, a spiritual experience or how we've connected certain things. Or it could be just something that we're mad about or sad about. So um, for me, the process of writing is the reason I'm writing is because I'm feeling something. I'm aware of something in life that's making me have to say something. And um, like when my father passed away, I did a lot of piano pieces and I would have these beautiful little melodies, but then I'd do these improvised rhythms. And he'd just say to me, you know, can you play me some music? And I, I went down to help him. He was in Florida at the time and pancreatic cancer. Loved Chopin, so I wrote a song called My Father's Waltz, which was just a really pretty little melody. If I played anything sad, he'd say, no, 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 play me something happy. Hmm. Um, and um, 
So, you know, my sadness, I needed to get it out of me. I was, it was really hard. So I think the reason I'm an artist, the reason I love to play and the reason I love to make music is because it helps me in life to express the things that I'm feeling and seeing around me. If I'm not mistaken, did you not give up music for a little while? I didn't have a piano for a while. I, I moved to the country, um, left Toronto, um, doing a lot of family shows. My daughter at the time, uh, who's now a celebrity nutritionist, uh, she played drums, and we oh. were, it was called Miranda's Band. Wow. Her name's Miranda <laughs> Malasani. And uh, um, actually, she's uh, doing some work with Walk Off the Earth, and Elvis Stoiko just called her. She's got all sorts of great, great people that she's working with. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, those years, you know, it was sort of a hard work, a challenging marriage, um, <clears throat> but um, I never gave up music. I always played, but it was just the, the tools, like when Chris was talking about that early guitar, mm. it's quite different than when you have a beautiful uh, piano. I mm-hmm. had keyboards, an Akai sampler, I had the, a recording studio, <clears throat> excuse me, um, And um, but when I got a piano back, somebody saw me and gave me a piano, and it changed my life. It actually... It, 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 it was the most beautiful gift I could ever have imagined because I was in a challenging marriage. It gave me those hours of playing. And I would actually imagine after I performed a song, nobody was there in this lovely little wooden cabin. I could hear people clapping. And I've talked to Chris about this. One of our songs is called Vision. And, you know, for me, um, what spirituality means is that you can have a vision. You, you keep moving forward to what your vision and your imagination are. And I knew when I was playing the piano in that little house, I knew I'd be in big audiences. I knew I'd be playing in front of people because I could feel it and hear it. And um, I think that's what that spiritual path taught me was that when you, um, instead of thinking of something and worrying about life, right. you think from it, the end result backwards. And then when you have that in your heart, everything, it's like you see these incredible little crossroads that are like, wow, amazing. I can't believe I'm here. This is just where I wanted to be. Um, can we talk a little bit about you working with Steinway? Is that right? Sure, yeah. Okay, so I would presume that working with Steinway would be like the ultimate in working with piano, like great piano. Oh, it was exciting. I went down to New York City uh, and um, I saw a lot of classical artists, you know, there's the usual way. A lot of people are going into the New York factory. And um, I learned all about pianos. And so how did that come about? How did you wind up? Being a rep That's a good question. I was living in eastern Ontario at the time. I had already met Chris, and we were playing, uh, um, I was playing flute with him. It was um, in the summertime, about four and a half years ago. And um, I knew that uh, I needed to get back to Toronto. I just had to. Plus, the drive was three and a half hours, (laughs) and it was tough. (laughs) So um, basically, I just kept looking for work, and I saw um, a position. It was Tom Lee. Uh, Steinway Piano Gallery and I um, m- as I mentioned my father had passed away now mm-hmm. he promised that he was going to get me a grand piano we had this sort of deal that I was going to teach him piano lessons and you know I, I didn't think it was going to be a Steinway it was just going to be a beautiful grand piano which by the way I, I did actually get from him <laughs> from one of his cousins a few years ago which is a whole other story um, so when I you know, found out that I had an interview for Steinway. I just started studying, of course, you know, pianos. And um, um, I got the job. 
and they really liked me and I loved it. I, I met so many jazz pianists and wonderful, wonderful artists uh, that would come in and they would practice. And I also met a lot of kids and teachers and families, of course. So the role would have been I was a, p- a piano consultant. Okay. And so I, I would really try to explain to people what makes a piano great. And, um, of course, with Steinway, it's, you know, the materials they use are, are incredible. And also their design, you know, the response. Um, one of my clients now, he, he has a Steinway. And, you know, it's, like, it's as if your finger is glued to the key. You just go, so fast. Uh, that's the thing I don't have in my grand piano. Uh, at home, I have a 75-year-old Kanabi. Beautiful oak, gorgeous tone, very warm. But the response is not like a Steinway, uh, which is why classical artists and jazz pianists love them so much mm-hmm. because they, you, can, you can everything you can imagine doing on them, um, you can. And of course, at the a gallery, you would come by, and we did. You know, we were able to record the Model D, and you know, just bring in some people and have some fun. You know, after hours at the gallery. <laughs> How did you two meet? How did this happen? Um, we met at my studio. I had a recording studio in Toronto when I first arrived. I went into partnership with a man called David Bray. And we had a studio, a place called Studio City in Sherbourne Street, Sherbourne, Adelaide. Okay. And uh, Shari contacted me to do some a mix or something on one of her tracks, that's, that's right? I, I, that's yeah, it. it's a... It's she found me on LinkedIn, I think. That's right. And so she came to my studio and then... Uh, at the time, I just finished an album called Be Creative, which is my debut Canadian album, with uh, Rick Emmett's on it, and you know, uh, uh, what's his name, Glenn Milchum from Blue Rodeo. There's some nice people on the yeah. album. But it was my introduction to, and uh, she'd heard that album, and and uh, she really liked what I was doing. So we kind of stayed together, and I was then I got this residency. I think it was at the 120 Diner, wasn't it? Uh, the Cameron House. Oh, the Cameron House. Or, well, yeah, I was playing odd places around. Toronto and I just just say we're gonna come and play because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of flute always have been and I've used flute on a lot of my records but uh, as a keyboard flute right like my Men from the Sky album which I released in London has a lot of flute parts on it but it was a keyboard flute so so when I met a real flute player <laughs> well, this is a, this is really cool you know it's just let's um you know let's work together and flutes you know not used that very much these days and uh, we got a comment after. Uh, we just released this new album called 1111 and a friend of ours Taylor Abrahams is a really talented artist that lives here in Toronto he, he wrote to me and said wow I love the album he says you, you made flute cool again <laughs> <laughs> so we got that we have a the flute's kind of you know working with Shari has brought an edge to what we're doing which is different from what most people are doing what is your flute style? Is it is it classical trained or is it more like Jethro Tull? Or what does your flute yeah, playing come from? Yeah, Jethro Tull was a huge inspiration. I met Ian Anderson backstage after a concert he did here in Toronto and he was very upset because somebody had forgot to turn the main speakers on for half the show. So he was playing with his monitors. Wow. And uh, so I met him and he was very humble and lovely. Uh, um, but um, I, I just studied flute in school. When I was here, I studied with a man named Don Angler. It was jazz. And I just want to, I want to, improvisation so I was really you know interested not in reading but in learning about how to make this flute sing um you know, Mo Kaufman loved him I saw him at George's Spaghetti House um but you're working um, with a quite well-known 
She's still doing uh, flute lessons because she's oh, evolving I, all the time. Well, yeah, uh, just Bill McBurney. I happened to meet him at my flute repair shop. And uh, <laughs> this other friend of mine kept saying, uh, you've got to come out and see this guy play flute. He's incredible. He plays Latin and jazz. And here he was sitting there. And when I heard him play on these beat up flutes, I'm like, oh, man, this guy's really good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's what I love about music. Also, you never stop evolving. Mm-hmm. So if I can learn any gems from anybody you know um what he taught me in one lesson i'm still working on i i i need to just keep on you know going back what he told me and apply it to everything i do um same when uh, chris and i work on uh, different drums and percussion you know i can apply that to the piano um so but my style really is uh um i would say it's very melodic uh improvisation little, some blues a little jazz uh and a lot of rock love uh, in our rock songs um the music when i heard you know chris's album and one of the first songs you played for me was that guitar one where the trues did a cover oh yeah and um you know it would be like chris to you yeah yeah and um so what uh chris likes uh me to do is i will double his guitar solo but just parts of it so it'll be a nice high part and then there'll be improvisations we we also use pads a lot too if you if you double track the flute and then put a harmony is you get this really beautiful sound right. you know you've heard the Beatles use that sound quite a bit and, and it's uh, so we use that a lot in our music too we use the flute as a pad almost like a keyboard sound so I'm, I'm curious that that piece that you went to Chris with initially that yeah. you wanted to record yeah what happened to that piece well it's so <laughs> interesting um actually uh it was uh, a good friend of ours named Tom O'Morien videoed it here at the Steinway Piano Gallery in Markham uh, I was originally hired for that one, and then they transferred me to Mississauga. And a violinist played. It's called Floating in A Minor. And um, at the time, I was busy in eastern Ontario sending my music everywhere. And I met a publisher down in Fort Lauderdale. And I had done a concert at the University of Ottawa for a mental health charity called the Mood Disorder Society of Canada. So he said he'd love the song, but there was this sound in it. And somebody had been taking pictures, like that old camera. Yeah. So you kept turning, shh. <laughs> so I was like, this guy wants to publish the song or get a, you know, beyond some kind of film. Uh, I wrote four studios from through LinkedIn, and two of them answered me, both in Toronto, and Chris was one of them. He was the first one to answer me, and so <clears throat> that's how I met him. Really, just uh, he he said, oh no problem, just took all that sound out. Uh, I sent it down, and they never did anything with it. Um, but um, when Tom videoed it at the Steinway Gallery, um, it it's getting thousands of views on Facebook. Uh, I guess there's some kind of algorithm and uh, it's super exciting because, you know, it uh, was one of those kinds of pieces that just lots of uh, rhythms and movements. Um, I love songs with movements um, so that it's not boring, you know, and Mm -hmm. a lot of my piano pieces are like that. And actually a lot of our Free Spirits music is like that. Um, We kept talking about a symphony. In a way, Four Elements is like our symphony on this particular album. Because it has about, you know, six different movements. Rock flute, sweet flute, First Nations flute, uh, your, all mm. your guitar parts, uh, and different soloing and things like that. Yeah, we, we were very inspired on this record by listening to uh, people like Jean Le Ponty. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, and John McLaughlin, the Mavish New Orchestra. Stuff that I used to, I bought all the vinyls when I was a kid. And uh, I was totally into that stuff. So we, we, we didn't want to uh, follow the usual ABC format and make it for radio playing all that. We weren't really interested in that. We just wanted to do what we f- 
really wanted to do. In other words, we wanted to make one of the songs that we've done is is a kind of a bit like Yes. We didn't copy Yes, obviously, but we didn't sort of say, oh, there's a, you know, you've got the verse, then you've got the pre-chorus and the chorus, and then you've got to go into a bridge and all that stuff, which the, the rules that people follow. Right. We decided not to follow any rules on this on this record, and we just did. It, sometimes the music flows into different chapters, and we've got yeah. songs for the next album, which we're working on. One's called Boyfriend. It has it has ten pieces of music <laughs> in it, but it all fits together. I wonder, um, especially with with your background and the successes that you've had as a producer and engineer and working with really successful musicians, I wonder when you when you work on your own project, um, what your goals are. You know, like I mean, if you if you've worked on an album with Sinead O'Connor and it blows up, um, and I presume that that changed her and might have mm. probably changed your situation as well. Yes, it did. Um, yeah. And having having that experience, I, I just don't know how you look at things if differently now because of the fact that you've had success as somebody behind the scenes. Um, well, yeah, success is uh, success has never been my driving force for me is um, I get so much pleasure in creating a piece of music then that is reward enough for doing it and to some extent I don't really care if anybody hears it or if it's successful or anything like that really? I mean I've um, you know what the, the Sinead O'Connor is a good, it's a good example I mean she was she was not after success mm-hmm. she just had a message she did wanted to do something and she's driven by passion but the passion wasn't for success it was to passion was to express but as a uh, producer and the record company says hey we want you to work with this person and it was a different time but how often are you thinking about commerciality and, and potential for success as opposed to just purely music well um, well to be quite honest uh, I don't I never consider that but obviously uh, there are people that have to consider that like the average A&R man is a liaison between you right. know, and was, and the producer's job actually is a liaison between the artist and the business, normally. So it's uh, it's never been uh, for for me personally, it's never been really that the driving force has never been that ever. I mean, I, with Sinead, for example, we did uh, nothing compares to you, which is Prince song, yeah. and then I went to see her at the Albert Hall because that that record became like number one everywhere, and so we all went. There's a Albert Hall's a massive. Yeah, venue in London. Beautiful place. And uh, I was there sitting there with the record company and then Sinead comes on the stage and then, you know, gets gets to introduce Nothing Compares to You. She said, uh, this is a song which uh written by Prince. And, so, and to be honest, if I'd known it was going to be a hit, I never would have done it. <laughs> 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 so she, she found it a nuisance, you know. Uh, I have to say that what drives most people at we're, in, we're all in the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. And what drives most people to uh, is um, is because they think that when they're rich and famous, they're going to be happy. Now, I've been in my during my music career, even though I started off as rags rags person, I've been uh, you know like a multi-millionaire based on royalties, and I had a, a 32-room chateau in the south of France and all that, and houses in London, and I bought my parents a farm, and you know. I had lots of money. Uh, to be quite honest, when I was earning, you know, getting checks for half a million dollars coming in and all that sort of stuff, I was really stressed out and I wasn't happy at all. 
So in a way, I'm, fortunate, I'm more fortunate than most people because the illusion of being successful and rich doesn't affect me anymore because I've been there mm-hmm. and I know it's not, that's not the answer. That's not where happiness lies. Happiness lies in a, it's a momentary... You, it's impossible to have happiness all the time. So happiness is a momentary right. thing, which uh, the pursuit of happiness is an interesting uh, expression. Because why? Why should we pursue it? We should have it, right? But we, but we, in fact, it's it, we don't because our life, our lives, and the and the universe, and everything around us is changing constantly. We have a new, completely new body every seven years. I don't know if you know that, but you know we have a new liver every five weeks, and our, we're completely regenerating all the time. So you can't rest in a place and say, right now I'm happy and that's it. It doesn't work that way. Because we're moving all the time. But, I, but what I, wonder, I, find that, I find that's what gives me happiness, understanding that concept. Right. I mean, and it makes sense because <laughs> it, it, is, it isn't static and things move around. <laughs> but when you have success, um, especially from somebody who's living on a park bench, I, I don't, I, and I don't even know if you, if that was even ever a goal for you. I was under the park bench. It's raining. It's in London. Right? But, I mean, did you ever have a thought of, gee, I want to make it, or that was never the case? It was just, I want to play. No, I just wanted to be as good as like some of the people I looked up to. I wasn't interested in making it. I, I wanted to be as good as Richie Blackmore, and I wanted to be as good as Steve Howe. Yes, and. And that was my aspiration, right. and that that was my real aim in life: is to be as good as I could could be, not not to be successful and famous. You know. Okay, so yeah. so when success does happen to you, and and then you see ridiculous amounts of money, what how does what does that do to you? It makes your life really complicated. The problem is with money's not a problem. The money I consider energy; it flows from one place to the other. It's, it's very useful. It's it's the love of money which is the problem. In other words, the attachment to money which causes so much misery in people's lives. And if we could just be, just consider money as energy and it's flowing. Uh, like, uh, you know, I'm a musician, so I'm in the music business and you know, I haven't got a massive hit record at the moment. Probably will soon with 11.11, I'm sure, but it, it, we don't have, uh, you know, money's not apparent at the moment. But what's interesting is is hunting. I love the process of hunting. So uh, it, it's, it might sound paradox, paradoxical to say this, but sometimes I don't... I like not having any money and thinking, oh, how am I going to pay my rent next month? Because it makes me... It gives me energy to sort of start hunting. And if you took that away, there's no reason to do anything. So, you know, I, I don't advise that people should spend their lives dreaming about being rich because I can tell you it's an illusion it's not going to make you happy that's the point I'm trying to make but it's better than not being rich no it's not it's not <laughs> no? you can be really happy digging a road digging a hole in a road right if you do it with attention and you the happiness comes from being pr- present to the miracle of your life that's where real happiness comes from and that's that can be obtained with meditation that doesn't cost anything you're not paying anything for it you just sit down it can be done walking down the street and feeling your feet on the pavement you can suddenly think well god i'm alive this is amazing so you can be it doesn't matter what you're doing if, you, if you're a road digger or garbage man if you do it with love that's the expression i use because it means you're doing it with some form of dedication that actually would bring 
the happiness. Right. So but whether, how you're, whether you're a stockbroker or a road sweeper, it doesn't actually make any difference whatsoever. Okay. It's, it's it makes you, sense to me. Yeah. But I wonder, you know, having had success mm-hmm. and having had albums that sold ridiculous amounts of amount yeah. to the public, um, how how do you? What kind of goals do you set for yourself for Eleven Eleven? Like, what mm-hmm. do you? What what is success with this album? If it's uh, not money, what what is it? Oh well, well obviously we'd like people to hear it, right? You know, because we think it's actually a really good statement, and we have a lot of truth in this album, which I believe is beneficial for people to perceive. So, in the interest of the brotherhood of man and woman, and giving love to those around you, the Eleven Eleven album is very very important, and uh, for me that is the most important thing in my life is to helping others around me to feel better about themselves and I'm always if you come to one of our concerts when I talk to people I'm always trying to explain to people that they have a light in them and they're a part of that, that every, each and every one of us has the light of the creative spirit call it what you like God whatever you want to call it it's, it's in each, each of us and if only we could sense that and feel it there would be no there would be no more suffering and misery. We'd be, we'd find true happiness. Right. So th- that's that's what we've got. In, that's what we're trying to convey on this with this album. So our ambition, I guess, if you're going to use the word ambition, is is to have the the album heard. Our ambition isn't to be rich and famous, but it is to get uh, to share our understanding of certain very important psychological facts about living. Peace, in peace and harmony with, with ourselves and with others that's, that's what's in the, the message that's in the songs but, but musically um, is it like if you got hundreds of thousands millions of streams because that's the reality of today yeah. would, that, would that be achieving a goal I mean is it to tour the world is it to you know like Sherry what, what would be your idea of success or a goal yeah we talk we talk about tours in australia and germany um you know i think it's a great question what the goal is and and uh you know writing recording and performing those three things it's like this cycle what you write because you have this idea or you know just these things happen and the song gets born um when we did our album release party last week i was looking at the audience they were smiling they were happy and we've been rehearsing and working you know hard to make the concert the best we could then the songs are so different the arrangements are so beautiful and unique and I don't know if a lot of people know this about Chris because you know him as a guitar player but he's a drummer a bass player a keyboard player incredible vocal arranger so for example when we'd be working on a song do a drum part and then you know Chris could play some percussion along with it or edit parts to make a different drum fills it, it was all it, an incredible experience of how the song began to unfold then bass you know then guitar then keys um so what what we really want to do is share the music because we really love it and we see people's reaction to it and after it's shared and played everywhere yeah we want to tour we want to and then we want to write the next album and just keep it going because mm-hmm. um, that that's really what makes us mm. happy 
um, like when we were talking about money, I mean, we've both been in positions where we've had no money and you go hungry. It's no fun. Um, you know, you want to have enough money so that you can have your needs met. Right. And, and, and that's really important. Uh, you don't want money to weigh you down. So there's this sort of balance about having, you know, the middle road, I guess. Right. Um, but we really want to tour. Uh, we want to play also a lot of festivals here in Toronto this summer. And uh, just, uh, it makes us so happy that after that, uh, uh, the album launch party, people just, it was like, I felt like the sky opened up. I can't even explain it, but I felt like I was like in corners of the sky everywhere. It was just so exciting. Yeah, we have a song called The, the Power of Our Love, and the, mm-hmm. the, the chorus is The Power of Our Love Will Open Up a Hole in the Universe. The Power of Our Love Will Open Up a Hole in the Sky. So, you know, we are, we are climbers, we're climbing to the stars. So it's, uh, the message in that song is that if you love, if you can find a way of loving other people unconditionally, then the universe really opens up for you because the universe is all about love. Mm-hmm. So you know we're, we're, it's growing, and the, the the energy that's coming from from the creative spirit and manifesting into suns and planets, it's all part of evolution. It's a beautiful process. So we actually, you know, be, when you when we're doing our music, we actually when anybody's doing art they're actually participating in that evolutionary energy they're, they're helping to give out the, the love energy right and love is is pure energy so this album is all about love you know so, so that's that's, yeah. that's the foundation of it we we we, uh, we love the music but we love the we love the potential effect that it can have on other people in the way of making them feel better about themselves and and also, you know, the experience of being up there, you have to think about a lot. Like, you've got a lot going on in your head, all the mm-hmm. different songs, all the different parts. But at some point, you're also not really, like, you're, you're, your body's just doing it on its own. And uh, sometimes you surprise yourself and you go, oh, wow, I like that solo. Or, you know, even though you might have worked on it for quite a lot, uh, you know, before the concert. Uh, it's the experience of playing music. And I know they've done a lot of studies on the brain. Uh, and uh, even things like um, our friend Tom, who passed away, he's a videographer. He did Chris's Be Creative um, video on, on that particular song. And he also did Everyday People and Turning Around the Sun, a few other videos. Um, when I first met him, he was saying that people with Parkinson's disease can dance. They, they don't shake. Um, so there's something about the arts that's very healing. Mm-hmm. And I'm very fascinated about that. And if you ever look at a room, if you give percussion to a, a group of people, everybody's smiling. It's amazing to see it actually, and they right. don't even realize they're smiling, but they're like yeah. hitting something and feeling a rhythm. The energy of music does something. It's a great um, form of communication, and yeah. we, I call it the universal language of music because because uh, like percussion, drums were the first you know, known instrument on this planet. People mm-hmm. bash, hitting bones together or whatever, you know. But they but there's a way of um, you're literally talking to someone else when you when you're playing with musicians that it's not this type of talk but you actually it's a real profound communication which is going on you're (laughs) sensing the other person they're sensing you and you're interacting it's just the most beautiful thing and i'm so happy to be able to work in this very fine medium which we call music because you know an artist uh you know a sculptor will work with stone and clay to realize their vision Right, uh, and a painter will work with liquids, and colors, uh, but they're all tactile things that you can see, but you can't actually see music. Mm-hmm. It's so fine. So I consider it on a very high vibrational level and a very fine 
medium of communication and I think it's one of the reasons why it's so powerful it's really it's a really powerful form of uh, therapy uh, and communication um, you mentioned the everyday people video which I watched last night um, beautiful song how, how do you come go about picking one non-original song <laughs> when you're both right <laughs> right and then and, and how do you decide that how, what, what is it about that song that you thought we need to do this and it's a great version yeah yeah well, you can tell me, uh, well um, before we write we always want to listen to other artists so we were listening to Larry Graham and you mm-hmm. know I, I love the bass very much and so we couldn't believe it we found a Larry Graham tutorial and you know the, the slapping and yeah. picking and, all this, <laughs> is, is, and he gave his secrets you know it's like and we just blown away by him so then we started watching some Larry Graham and then we found everyday people we did the bass line he goes this is what I did on the beat you know he's hitting it with his thumb on the offbeat you know and then we and then we thought that's so but we thought we listened to the song we we found the the actual song on YouTube and listened to the lyrics I I can't believe it they came out in the 70s it's such a great peace message and our album is essentially about love and peace you know that's the roots of the, the album and I, we just thought, well, we've got to do this song because everybody's forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of the best peace songs ever written. It's about getting on with each other, you know, mm-hmm. blue one and the, the long hair and the short hair and the rich one and the poor one, the fat one, and the skinny one. All, you know, we're everyday people. Right. It's, it's such a powerful message. It's a beautiful message, in fact. So that's why we, we had 10 songs we were going to put on the album originally. And then we found that everyday people, we thought we've got to do our own version of that song. Uh, so that made it an 11 song album that, that's partly to do with the 1111 thing but there's another spiritual message in 1111 too but uh, that was the that was the turning point wasn't it yeah. 11 tracks oh, 11, yeah 11. then we thought 11 because we, yeah. we almost called the album Everyday People at one point oh really and yeah. uh, then all of a sudden when we were thinking well it could be 12 tracks well it was 10 <laughs> oh 11 and I, I think we might have even looked at the clock and it was 1111 and mm. you know Chris and I are both very spiritual people and, and we do pay attention to those things and when you keep looking at your clock and it's always 1111 you're like hmm what's going on so you know, we googled it and it said synchronicity it, it is and weird when that happens I went through a phase where 911 was always the time when I looked at the clock and it was like why, why? Yeah. all that always and, yeah. and they say that it's just a time to just regroup yourself like just you know it's something's being there's something synchronicity yeah. is happening or uh, sometimes they say angels but I think what it is it's like wow you just stop and you go that is strange it is <laughs> you strange. just want to think about what you're doing and uh, uh, so a lot of people we've, I'm very fascinated by numbers as I mentioned and uh, we just thought 1111 is just a, a great al- uh, title for this album really so when you two met was it the music or was it the spirituality I was, I think was we it instantaneous? Through, we went through music, really, initially, yeah. And then, and then we discovered that we were on, on a, had very similar ideas about spirituality, yeah. Well, when I, when I was sitting in the studio and Chris was working on, on the piano piece, I just sort of felt this really beautiful energy. I just was like, oh, I really, of course, I love studios. <laughs> so I was sitting there and going, this is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, when Chris gave me Be Creative... I was really into creativity. I started a program for um, kids at risk called the Creative Players After School, which changed their lives. And it was just skits. And it just gave them so much confidence. And there was music and all sorts of fun fun things going on. Um, So when I I had the album, I just, I loved 
his songs like I they they reached me they touched me they moved me made me happy and I, I actually couldn't stop listening to it for probably for a few years wow. especially driving back and forth mm. from eastern Ontario um, and then when Chris asked me to play some penny whistle on this song called turning around the sun it kind of in exchange for my piano piece I think we did it even the same day actually yeah. um, anyway um, and then it was just you know, I, I spent a lot of time learning Chris's songs because I love them so much. And they had so much beautiful flute keyboard lines. And a lot of the flute on this album, he wrote the parts for. There's some parts that I did improvise. Um, but there's some beautiful parts that are like orchestral, like, wow, incredible. Yeah. Just our solos where, mm-hmm. he, sorry, where he'd whistle. Right. And I'd mm-hmm. play along and I'd be like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> it's like, that's so great. Um, so a very, I know, that's right. It's beautiful because yeah. I hear this I hear this beautiful melody. Um, well, even today before we came, he came up with a beautiful melody we put on voice memo because, uh, you know, just these inspirations yeah, just happen. come out. Um, yeah, so um, I think that um, uh, just really, uh, I think we, we had a certain connection, a uh, certain energy that, it was just so easy, wasn't mm. it? It still is. We just get along so well. And there's just so much space in our creations that we always just, things just seem to take on a life of their now, own. I'd like to say something to, to people listening on this, to this podcast, which might really help them. And that is that uh, it's, it's about listening. Like, for example, you can, you can play a First Nation round dance drum. Mm. Uh, you can play a monotonous beat, you know, ding, 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 like this. And if you just keep playing it and keep listening, it might take 30 minutes, it might take an hour you eventually start hearing melodies in that in that drum. The drum will start singing to you. The same as if you stand near an ocean. The ocean makes uh, what you call white noise. White noise is, uh, is noise that fills the whole audio spectrum from the ba- lowest bass to the highest. And it, and it goes... Like, like an aeroplane, you can hear that drone. Right. If you listen to that drone of the ocean long enough, it's, it's, you have to remember this... It's potentially every melody in the universe is in is is there. We just have to hear it. And it's all around us. Even the planets are making vibrations. Everything's coming at us. So really, you've just got to train yourself to listen. So you can stand you in ocean long enough, and if you're listening, really listening, you'll start hearing these little melodies inside the sound of the waves. And I wrote a whole album in Paris called Songs from the Drum. And that every song on that album was written by listening to a drum while I was playing it. And actually, when you told me that, mm. we were talking about that. Um, I I had the bath running. It was like the water, mm. and I could hear something. Yeah. Like because Chris, we were talking about hearing melodies behind mm. things and really mm. listening. And I love listening. And a song came out, it was called The Cold Bath Water Blues, because at the time there's a lot of homeless people out on the street. (laughs) And, you know, we we kind of were kidding around about it, but I'm like, Chris, listen to this. Listen to this. I recorded this water. You can hear something. And I played it. I played it. And that's when the song came out for that. You know, it's interesting, the inspiration for different songs. But uh, It's the sound of running water, yeah. That was quite... You can go out in nature and listen. I have to wrap this up, but there's two things I need to do. One is uh, you talked about a John Bonham story. So if anybody's interested in hearing that, I should ask you about that story. Oh, yeah, okay. I'll tell you the, the, the short version. Uh, well, I was uh, 
I mentioned earlier that I was in a band called Love Affair, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to leave England three months every year for tax reasons. Right. At that time, it was if you were owned over a certain amount of money, you, if you weren't out of the country for three months, you get this super tax thing happens, right? So my our this agent, is the same thing that the Rolling Stones went through. Yeah, right? that's it. Yeah. Most yeah, I, don't, I think Thatcher started all that. I don't, anyway, but um, they uh, so. Our agent booked us in a club in Guernsey, which is a tax exile island, much like Monaco and Andorra, those sort of places, right? Right. Um, Luxembourg. You know. So uh, this is a little island between England and France in the English Channel. And we played this huge club, and we booked there for three months, playing every night in this massive club. And, uh, you know, everlasting love, you know. <laughs> and so, so anyway, uh, the second night we were there on stage, I, I looked down... I was playing my guitar and I looked down to the audience and there's this big table racked with bottles of champagne and all kinds of things and there's I looked at the people around the table and I thought that, that looks like Robert Plant that can't be you know that looks like Jimmy Page and it turned out that Led Zeppelin were stuck in Guernsey for three months for the same reason so they so they came up and said oh you know we're really bored guys would, would you mind if we come up and jam with you and so no, that's great, you know. So I got to play with John Bonham for wow. for uh, you know three months. He's one of my favourite rock drummers. But the John Bonham story, which nobody really knows about, is uh, there was a, a magazine called Melody Maker, mm-hmm. and they sent a, a kind of paparazzi guy out to film nice. Zepp, you know, out in uh, Guernsey. And this this guy had the audacity to follow John into the washroom when he was going for a pee, right? And John turned around and saw him like this guy holding his camera, and he got—he's a kind of aggressive, yeah, strong yeah. character. And I—I I was in the washroom at the same time, and the, John picked this guy up by the ankles and held him upside down. And all his—I remember all his change coming out and jangling on the floor, you know, on the tile floor. <laughs> and he said, "Don't take—I won't say what he said, but don't take yeah, pictures, yeah. you whatever, you know, blah blah, beep 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 beep, you know." So, so that was uh, that was my John Bonham story. <laughs> well, that kind of fits my image of him, <laughs> and that's it's a positive thing. No, um, yeah, I don't blame him. You know, yeah, you well, some privacy for sure. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I know this was arranged at the last minute. I really appreciate you guys doing this. I want to finish off by asking you both: what's the, what's the greatest thing that you've ever learned from one another, musically? Uh, well, well, I learned. Um, I learned to appreciate the flute a lot more from working with Sherry. But also, uh, she has a feminine aspect to things, which, you know, I'm a, I'm a typical guy, you know. So, uh, and I believe that real balance comes from balance between male and female in any activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to be too biased towards male energy on this planet for thousands of years. Thank heavens that's changing now, gradually. But the pendulum swung the other way, and it's probably eventually going to come into the middle where we have gender equality, which is a perfect situation for this planet, I believe. So I kind of learned that also from, you know, from spending a lot of time with Shari. Her feminine energy has been really beneficial. But, you know, also the joys of playing with a wind instrument player. It's great, because aren't we playing with, like, rock, you know, bass players and drummers and stuff so it's been uh, it's given me a more delicate aspect of if you listen to 1111 it's a it's a very feminine album it has a lot of feminine energy in it as opposed to you know a kind of rock album or straight you know 
So that's, that's kind of my, what I've benefited from our relationship. Sherry? I've learned so much from Chris, um, you know, uh, how to record on Pro Tools and arrangements. I've always been doing things, but I've never stretched myself the way I have working with Chris. Um, you know, when I think about his name on 100 million records sold, mm -hmm. why is that? It's because what he does is so brilliant. It's like um, uh, I just basically sit back and watch him work. And he'll say, oh, do you want to do something? I'm like, no, no, you, you continue just to drop it, you know. And so sort of that feeling of, of, of watching and listening has really taught me a lot about everything. It's about uh, simple things like pushes in a, in a piece of music, uh, things where, where you can take it. I mean, as far as arrangements go, um, there's just so many things. Um, how, I can't say how to make a great song because the song kind of writes itself. But watching Chris do the arrangements and the ideas that we just allow to happen, and also we're having a really good time. Mm -hmm. So you know we're laughing and, yeah. and being creative. And I've got a nice little cottage up in Musselman's Lake, so it's very quiet. We could be working till two, three in the morning. Um, so I, I've learned just a lot about music, singing. Um, I think Chris has helped me find my voice, um, uh, you know, because even things like we'll talk about the throat chakra, you know, or we'll talk, you know, once again, going back to spirituality. Right. Um, I'm very fortunate. I feel like I've gotten the most beautiful education I could have ever imagined. And I always wanted to go to university. I was accepted to York for flute and Humber College. And I ended up getting married to a drummer at 18. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, this last four years has been the the best education in all aspects of music, recording, arranging, production, and um, you know when we go out and play, it's just been fantastic. I can imagine. Yeah, well, I just want to say one quick thing. Also, the the thing Sherry's given me is, is her presence has been emotionally very supportive for me. So she makes me better at what I do because she has she's because I know that she enjoys what I do and we understand that but when you're doing something with somebody that's really emotionally supportive mm -hmm. you know that they like what you're doing it makes you even better at what you're doing Okay, so so I quite often have to work with people sometimes I, I feel no, they don't really like this or you know, I feel that there's, there's a negative energy in the room and it really affects how your creative, creativity goes so I never get that from Shari Shari's positive supportive energy makes me much better at creating uh, and much more pleasure, pleasure, yeah. pleasurable too. Yeah. Okay, I lied, but there's one more question. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. So, Sherry mentioned the 100 million albums sold that you have been involved in. Um, what do you think it is about you that, that, that created or that, that allowed you to be involved in all these major projects that sold well? And I know it's not about selling, mm. but obviously you know your way around the studio. Is that just simply because it's something you had? Is that something that Tony Visconti sh taught you? Is it, how does that happen? Uh, well, I was fortunate in that I did an electronics degree when I left school, right. but I was also a musician. So when I started engineering, which I started that before I got into producing, everybody really liked working with me because I was a musical engineer. Like, uh, you know, in the days of analog, right. you might have to drop in on a one, two, three, four, the push just before the next downbeat. And I understood that straight away. The people didn't have to explain it to me. And it, and in those days, it was destructive. If you dropped in too early, you, you ruined 
you raise something and it's gone forever, right? right. Not now. It's just it's a piece of cake, you know, <laughs> on hard disk recording. But but, uh, so, but having so that, had so that, that experience, so that made me you know that made me uh, really good at what I was doing. Right. But the other thing is that I've always uh, believed. I've always believed that um, I've always tried to get out of the way of the creative process to let it happen. So many producers are very egocentric in their work, and it's like it's my way or the highway. I want it this. I, I've never been like that with people. I, I let them try to. I just think, well, let, let's let them do what they want. Even if it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's just and like it's worked very well with female artists that I've had success with, like Buffy Saint Marie, Sinead O'Connor, Alison Moyet. They're all sensitive artists, and if I'd been, if I'd been uh, taking the ego approach, like let's do it my way, right. it never would have worked. So you know, it's 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 important to be sensitive, but also to get out of the way of the creative process, let it happen. And that's been my philosophy, and that's really helped. I think that's and it's made people feel really comfortable. I don't even tell people I'm recording, you know. And then sometimes you get it, like what, like nothing compares to you with a one take vocal. Really? Yeah. So Sinead came in and did it straight away. And if I hadn't been ready and just captured it, if I'd been fiddling around and trying to EQ and trying to make it sound nice, it would, you know, it would have been a disaster. It wouldn't. Well, she's good anyway. But you know, I learned, I learned, uh, I learned not to interfere with things from uh, Trevor Horn, you know, Seals producer. Mm-hmm. I did some work with him. And uh, he came in once, to, a guy came in to play a piano piece. We had a Steinway down at the studio where I worked. Once again, a Steinway. Yeah. So <laughs> <John laughs> That's your sponsor, The studio's sure. owned by John Congress. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, so this guy was, this really good musician was there and he's playing. Of course, I was in record because I always record all the time. Uh, but I just thought he was practicing, right, the part. Because it, it, it was the first take, you know, it wasn't even a take; it was just a run through. Right. So I was fiddling around with this. I had this big trident desk, and I was going sweeping the EQs to find the sweet spot and all that stuff, right? And then at the end of the thing, I wound the tape back and I said, well, "I'm ready now, Trevor." And he said, "Oh, well, that, that's the take. I want that one." <laughs> and I said, well, "I said, uh, well, you can't, you can't use that. It's all." I was changing the EQ all the way through, and he said. Well, that's your problem. We're going out to dinner. You fix it. So, so I had to bounce the, <laughs> I had to bounce the pian- stereo piano track right. from two tracks to another two tracks, and re- literally reverse everything I did with a series of hundreds of drop-ins. And Jeez. I actually, I actually got it. But that taught me not to mess around with um, getting in the way of performance. You know, I don't even, I record everything natural now. I don't mess. I've seen producers destroy a singer by making them sing in like ten different mics and fiddling with the EQ and then okay now we've got a great sound let's have the vocal it's, it's nonsense mm-hmm. it's not sound that sells records it's performance you know and I don't understand that at a very early age so that's really helped me in my uh, my career as a producer well Sherry Chris thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate it oh, it's a pleasure it. well, thank, thank you for you. having us yes really appreciate <laughs> it and good luck with the new album oh by the way uh, can we just say uh, 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 just go to if you want to find out more yes. about us just go to uh www.thefreespirits.ca that's thefreespirits.ca and that's our, our band website right. and uh, do get all the information about us on there right. that's right thank you thank you so much for doing that thank you